Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my two great co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be back. And Haley Knopf. Hello, hello. Got a real packed show this week. I want to get right into it and some stories you've definitely heard about, but we'll give you the uh, Pro Se angle on this stuff. Later on, uh, we were joined once again by Frank Runyon, the Law 360 ace New York courts reporter, talking about the verdict in the what essentially became a rape and defamation trial against former President Donald Trump. It is an unprecedented decision for reasons that are very obvious. And Frank, as always, did a really good job of breaking down, you know, we talk about this a lot on the show, but trying to cut through a lot of the bluster that you hear about with the campaign really kicking into high gear. Because it is an interesting legal decision, and it it kind of hinges on this very novel law that was passed uh, in New York, which had been mostly untested. So Frank breaks that down as well. Um, so please stick around for that. Really good chat with Frank. Yeah, definitely. That was a nice talk. Because like you said, Alex, I think a lot of coverage has been more about the political implications. Some of the coverage has even been a little confusing about the um, the meaning of what happened yes. in that trial. So really good to just get a clear rundown from Frank. Not to spoil things, but our other topics today are George Santos and Varsity Blues. So we're hitting all the big ticket items in today's show. Haley, why don't you kick us off with what's going on with George Santos? Yeah, the news cycle this week has has truly been relentless. Perhaps a gift for those of us in the industry, but uh, it's it's been a lot. And yeah, as I'm sure you've heard, George Santos, the controversial Republican congressman out of New York, has been indicted. We got this news late Tuesday when someone leaked to the press that criminal charges had been filed in the Eastern District of New York, but we did not know what they were. And in fact, I was uh, one of the lucky individuals babysitting that docket late Tuesday, did not uh, glean a thing. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) But now we have seen this indictment and we also got a plea entered from Santos himself. Much to discuss. Yeah, I want to get into this because I've been following this just generally in the media, but now it's firmly tipped over into legal territory, and that's where Pro Se comes in. So we haven't talked about Santos on the show before. I know you said, perhaps this is even an understatement, he's controversial. Can we talk about how that controversy led to an indictment? Yeah, we're not a political podcast, as we we often say. And so we've certainly... We're not here to get too into the weeds with all the non-criminal allegations surrounding Santos. I'm sure everyone has had their fun reading the various think pieces and or his Wikipedia page, whatever, wherever you get your entertainment here. But the top line, um, as I'm sure everyone is aware, is Santos has basically been accused of lying about where he's worked, where he went to school, his religion, his ethnicity, The list goes on. And this is relevant to this week's indictment because he's being accused of defrauding campaign donors, obtaining fraudulent unemployment benefits, and lying on House of Representatives financial disclosures. So specifically, what we're looking at here is a 13-count indictment. That's seven counts of wire fraud, three counts of unlawful monetary transactions, one count of theft of public money, and two counts of making false statements. And a partridge in a pear tree. Uh, Very, (laughs) very timely seasonal reference from me. Way to go, Uh, me. Well, (laughs) Merry Christmas to all of our listeners. (laughs) A lot of fancy words for lying. Yeah, 
<laughs> that's a good call. Um, it's been a big couple of months, really, since he since he was elected. Big for the word fabulist. You see that thrown around a lot. Sure. Uh, <laughs> allegedly, anyway. And, you know, as you've already said, there is sort of a, if you are accused to have been lying about, you know, enough things, you're, and, you're a pu- and you're a public official, that might eventually tip into fraud. A lot of this is pretty self-explanatory, but what is being alleged in these documents by the prosecutors, Haley? They say he defrauded his political supporters by telling them to donate to what he characterized as a tax-exempt political fundraising group. He had said, you know, these funds will be used for things like television ads, typical campaign stuff. But in reality, according to prosecutors, he used most of those funds for his personal expenses. He bought some designer clothing and just in general made some personal credit card payments. Um, They also said he fraudulently got himself some COVID-19 relief from the federal government. And that was via $25,000 in unemployment benefits even though he was allegedly still working and, in fact, raking in a six-figure salary during that time. And in his 2020 Congressional Financial Disclosure Report, that was allegedly fraudulent because he inflated his income from one company and failed to report $25,000 from another gig. Then again in 2022, he again inflated his assets. Prosecutors say he falsely reported that he earned $750,000 in salary from one employer and that he had millions of dollars in unearned income and more than a million dollars in his bank accounts. And on top of all this, they say he failed to declare that COVID assistance that he received. So there's a whole laundry list here in this indictment. Have we gotten a reaction from Santos himself? I mean, he's obviously a public figure and he's usually not shy about talking to the press. So what has he said about this? He is not. Yeah. So he, you know, court proceedings first here, he pled not guilty and he's been released on a $500,000 unsecured bond. He also had to surrender his passport and he can only hang out in New York City, Long Island or Washington, D.C. That sounds such. brutal. That's, that's <laughs> punishment in and you of itself. You know what? <laughs> you say that, Alex, but there are all places. I mean, I haven't haven't lived on Long Island, but otherwise I've lived in New York and D.C. And so have you. Me too. Where else do we need to be, really? Um, He did get permission to travel elsewhere in the continental U.S., but he has to get permission from the government first. And so as far as his, you know, comments to the press go, he has taken what I call the Donald Trump approach. He calls the charges witch hunt. Um, He maintains his innocence, and he said he looks forward to clearing his name. He also will not be resigning from Congress. In fact, one interesting thing here is Santos is running for re-election. And his defense attorney told the court that he does need to be able to do this continental U.S. travel to fundraise and campaign. So perhaps uh, while all of this is unfolding, you can uh, attend a George Santos campaign event in your town. Definitely one to watch there. That one's early days, just getting started since that's an indictment. I want to go the opposite direction with my update on our little subbeat Varsity Blues. Um, that's the big college admissions scandal. I think everybody probably remembers because we've talked about it a hundred thousand times on Per Se. It, <laughs> it feels is, like it's been going on forever. We we play the hits, and good lord, that is that is Varsity Blues' music. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah, what's up on that? Uh, what's up on that beat? This week, the First Circuit wiped out nearly all the convictions of two parents who were found guilty at trial of paying 
huge sums of money to get their kids into elite colleges. What the court found there is that the evidence didn't prove an overarching conspiracy among a few other problems in those convictions. So tossed out. Okay. Well, so take us back so we can understand this one. What are the specific convictions that we're talking about here? Well, as I said, any loyal pro se listeners will be well versed in this, but um, yeah, for perhaps a stupid else. question. <laughs> <laughs> I also don't want to suppose that we can't get new people listening to the show. So, for anybody right. who's missed out or has forgotten the details of Varsity Blues, that scandal scooped up a bunch of rich parents accused of conspiring to get their kids into these elite colleges under fraudulent conditions. Mostly, that was by faking athletic records and a bunch of bribes. Crucially, most cases pled out and settled, but in October 2021, hedge fund founder John Wilson and former casino executive Gamal Abdelaziz stood trial, and they were convicted on conspiracy and tax fraud charges. And to our extensive uh, backlog of Varsity Blues reporting, we had Chris Villani on. Him and, him and Brian Dowling have been sharing the ball on this in Boston, doing an awesome job. We had Chris on, uh, that was episode 275 last um, November, when this case was getting argued at the First Circuit, and it really looked like it was going to get knocked down. And true to form, you know, Chris is a, is a hell of a court prognosticator because the Circuit Court did actually throw out these convictions. We knew they were skeptical because of what happened at argument, but what did the actual analysis look like here? Well, it was a very long opinion. Uh, the three-judge panel at the First Circuit vacated all but one of the convictions against Wilson and Abdelaziz. The judges said the government's theory of honest services fraud was invalid as a matter of law. The court also said the federal judge overseeing the trial was wrong to instruct the jury that the admission slots at the University of Southern California qualified as property for the purpose of wire fraud statutes. And the circuit court also found that Wilson and Abdelaziz were severely prejudiced by this overarching conspiracy charge that allowed the jury to hear basically a mountain of evidence that the government had compiled over the course of the sprawling Varsity Blues prosecution. And a lot of that evidence was about other parents' dealings with a man who's known as the ringleader of the Varsity Blues scandal, Rick Singer. So here's a quote about that. We see an unacceptable risk that the jury in this case may have imputed other parents' culpable mental states to the defendants. So that's the problem there, according to the First Circuit. The panel's decision to unwind these convictions found that the wire fraud allegations fell apart under a couple of theories, one, that USC was deprived of honest services of its employees, and also the theory that the scheme depended on the property of its admission slots. According to the circuit court, admission slots are not automatically property for the purposes of a wire fraud statute. So it's a little technical there, but there's some several grounds <laughs> that this was kicked out on. And if you've got time to kill, you can read the entire 150-page opinion, uh, uh, <laughs> right. opinion, excuse me, on uh, on A on bit of light reading. We're yeah. really giving you the hits because it was, as you said, over 150 pages. Yeah. The court also expressed concern that the prosecutor's broad views of both wire fraud theories could criminalize a wide array of conduct, including things like donating to a preschool by a parent hoping to gain admission for their kids or embellishments in a kindergarten application. So they said that, you know, we can't read this as broadly as the prosecutors want us to because it can open up these unintended consequences. While the opinion tossed the fraud, bribery, conspiracy counts, the panel did affirm Wilson's conviction for deducting $120,000 paid to Singer from his business and also claiming another $100,000 paid to Wilson as a charitable contribution. And those were both the tax fraud 
problems there. So that stood as a conviction. They'll always nick you on the tax stuff. Uh, that's Al that's, Capone uh, knows it. It's just a rule. That's airtight. But the reasons that that the uh, convictions were mostly thrown out is interesting because since the story broke, we've done it on the show. Most outlets that have tracked it have like focused on the vastness and like how many defendants there were accused. And as we say, most of them pled out. But it is interesting that at least in in one respect, sort of using the evidence of all of those other parents and what they did in a specific prosecution appears to have caused some trouble for the government here when they were trying to make that case, which is um, pretty fascinating. And it does. And it seems like a like a trend that the prosecutors are not going to be happy with if it, in fact, becomes a trend. Yeah. I mean, overall, this is just kind of bad for prosecutors because the U.S. Attorney's Office in Massachusetts launched this sprawling varsity blues case in 2019. So that's why we've been talking about it so long. It was the largest college admission scandal in U.S. history. And we've had dozens of parents, including really high-profile ones that people will definitely remember, like Lori Laughlin, Felicity Huffman, those, those uh, celebrity types. Many of them pled guilty and served time for their participation and, and reached other settlements. The alleged mastermind, Rick Singer, was sentenced to three and a half years in prison. So those are sort of maybe the win column or versions of that. But other verdicts have been overturned. Notably, USC's water polo coach had his conviction tossed when a federal judge ordered a new trial based on prosecutors' claims that the school was victimized by the bribes, which were ultimately paid into an account for the sports team. And then two other college admissions cases prosecuted in Boston also resulted in acquittals. So what to make of this, I would say, is that it's a bad day for prosecutors in an ongoing thing where you get some of your convictions tossed out. As I said, they've had a few other losses. So even though this is the largest scam about emissions in U.S. history, it's not been all wins for the government. This week, a Manhattan federal jury found former President Donald Trump responsible for sexually abusing writer E. Jean Carroll in the 1990s and then defaming her with his subsequent denials of the incident. The trial was a contentious and sometimes ugly spectacle, with Carroll's attorneys detailing the assault for the jury and the former president's legal team looking to poke holes in her credibility. In the end, Trump was ordered to pay Carroll $5 million while vowing to continue the fight at the Second Circuit. Here to break down this unprecedented decision, once again, is Law 360 New York Courts reporter Frank Runyon. Welcome back to the show, Frank. Thanks for having me on. We're glad to have you back. Uh, last time we were talking about an unprecedented happening involving Trump in the New York courts. But this is not a convoluted financial crime. This is, um, this is a, a case surrounding a very serious um, sexual assault accusation. So I just want to kind of get us right into it here. What do we need to know? How did this very ugly you know, dispute end up at trial? So I guess the story starts all the way back in 1996, we found out at trial. Um, early spring, Thursday night, a chance encounter between um, writer and advice columnist Eugene Carroll um, and Donald Trump at the upscale Bergdorf Goodman's department store, uh, where she said that she was coming out after shopping. She bumped into him there. Um, and, uh, they started talking. She started thinking, this is an interesting New York moment. I'm just going to go with this. And 
basically, the, the conversation led them upstairs. They were joking with one another. And then all of a sudden, Carol says uh, that she was basically forced into a uh, dressing room, pushed up against the wall, and, and raped by Donald Trump. She immediately told one of her friends, who said that, you know, um, Eugene, you were raped, you need, you need to go to the police. She told another one of her friends, who said, Eugene, Donald Trump's too powerful, he's going to destroy you if you come after him, you can't tell anyone. And basically, she, that's the friend that she listened to. Many years later, when she decided to come forward, um, in the uh, sort of the dawn of the, the, the Me Too movement, Trump lashed out at her and uh, called her a liar. And uh, Eugene Carroll said, defamed her. Um, and essentially, uh, that's what led to the first lawsuit that was in 2019. She filed for defamation. And then uh, later, again, uh, Trump made another statement um, in August 12th of um, 2022. And that statement was the basis for a separate lawsuit and one that brought a, an interesting claim, one under the Adult Survivors Act, which enabled uh, Carol to actually sue for the sexual assault itself. So this turned a defamation case into essentially a rape trial, but in a civil context, as well as a defamation claim. So we have two things that the jury considered. One was battery for the alleged rape, and the second was for defamation for the October 12th 2022 statement from Trump. This is something I really want to break down a little further, too. So the jury did find in Carol's favor this week. But as I've opened up Facebook and Twitter, it's been confusing seeing people talk about a conviction of Trump. And that's not what we're talking about. So can we be really clear here about what is and isn't covered by this trial? Absolutely. So this is a federal civil lawsuit that went to trial. And this jury of nine uh, had to decide uh, whether or not uh, Trump had uh, battered Carol, which is a you know, fancy legal term, a civil context for one person committing violence against another person. And it, you know, in this case, the allegation was rape under the Adult Survivors Act. And they had a couple different ways that they could get there under this as well. So uh, essentially, there is uh, the New York State criminal definition of rape the New York State criminal definition of sexual abuse, the criminal uh, definition in New York for forcible touching. Um, but essentially what's at issue here, the question was, did Donald Trump commit sexual violence against E. Jean Carroll? And the answer to that ultimately was yes. And uh, the second element of there, the question was, well, then did Trump defame her by denying that he had, in fact, commit sexual violence against her? And the answer to that was yes. And so the jury awarded uh, about $2 million uh, for the battery and $3 million uh, for the defamation. This is a pretty unpleasant thing to talk about, uh, Frank, and you covered it very well for us, I must say. But, and I don't want to like gamify it too much like we do with a lot of other kind of, you know, corporate law trials like this. But there were a lot of contentious things said because it's, you know, it's an accusation of pretty serious violence. I wanted to talk to you about the sort of legal approaches that each side took at trial, you covered it pretty exhaustively. What were they trying to convince the jury of, like, on a day-to-day -day basis here in the, uh, in the trial? Right. Well, let me just say, uh, Stuart Bishop, my venerable colleague, basically covered the first half of that, um, then he got sick, and I picked it up uh, second and did the best that I could. Um, it takes so a village. You guys both, both did awesome, yes. <laughs> um, so 
Eugene Carroll's side was essentially trying to, nearly 30 years later, show that uh, this sexual assault had happened um, in this in this dressing room. And so uh, in order to do that, uh, Eugene Carroll herself took the stand for several days. She had two corroborating witnesses, um, the two women that she had spoken to contemporaneously at that time. And then um, furthermore, there were two women who described being sexually attacked by Trump um, separately and in entirely different instances. One um, in an airplane in 1979 and another um, at his uh, Mar-a-Lago resort in 2005. And the idea there was to show that he had attacked these three women, uh, Jessica Leeds, Natasha Stoinoff, and Eugene Carroll, with a similar MO, um, that he had attacked them all of a sudden in a semi-public place and essentially do, did what he had said in the Access Hollywood video when he uh, basically admitted that he, he grabs women just because he's a star, and he can. Um, and so, you know, that was essentially, um, in a nutshell, the, the case that uh, Eugene Carroll was putting forward um, with that evidence in addition to expert testimony. So it's clear with the, what E. Jean Carroll and other women were alleging here, but Trump himself didn't actually testify at trial. He did, however, sit for a deposition, and I know there were some interesting things that came out of that and that tapes were played for the jury. Can you tell us about the highlights of, of what was played out of that deposition? Yeah, absolutely. Trump's deposition was, you know, essentially his side of the case at trial, even though he didn't present one and he didn't show up, uh, at, you know, for trial. He was present in the room only through this video deposition, um, which was which was played as evidence in the case. And I guess what was remarkable about that is um, it was an opportunity under oath for Trump to be con- confronted with some of his past statements. Um, and it essentially, it, you know, the Access Hollywood tape um, was just a, a remarkable moment when he essentially doubled down on that. And he said, yeah, absolutely. Yep, still agree with that. Um, and, uh, you know, when you're a star, you know, they, they let you do it. And that's how it's been for millions of years. And, uh, you know, Mr. Trump, do you consider yourself a star? Yeah, you could say that. Um, so, you know, that was one of the most remarkable moments. Another, I think, probably stunning moment was when Eugene Carroll's attorneys handed him a photograph. And uh, they said, well, here's a photograph. Can you name the people that are in this photo? And he looks at one of the women on the left and he said, oh, that's Marla Maples. That was my wife. And... You know, Robbie Kaplan says, no, that's that's Eugene Carroll. Yeah. And and that was that was a stunning moment because, um, you know, one of his primary defenses had been, uh, look, she's not my type. You know, I guess under the logic that if she's not my type, then, you know, he wouldn't have sexually assaulted her. And, uh, you know, here you have him mistaking Eugene Carroll for his ex-wife, who he had already basically said, yes, my wives were my type in case there needed to be uh, yeah. any kind of clarification on that point. So there were a couple of moments in there that were really pretty remarkable. So needless to say, I for reasons that I think are, are fairly obvious, this is a decision without much precedent considering who the defendant is here. He's a former president, and he's also currently a candidate to try and take the presidency back. Uh, this isn't happening in a vacuum in the modern media climate, all that stuff. Because it's so unique, I don't know if there are sort of lessons to be learned in the same way there might be from some dry antitrust case or something, but I guess I'll just, we can leave on this. I mean, 
what comes next here? There have been noises about appeals and a couple other things. Um, any other kind of big takeaways here? Uh, I'm all ears. You know, I, I think there's a million different ways that you can take that question because there is so much going on here. I mean, first of all, this is a former United States president and a federal jury found that he committed sexual violence against women. And, you know, I just stop and really think about that for a moment. That's incredible. Now, obviously, then you can go and take the off ramp and say, OK, let's look at all of Trump's other legal uh, woes. Um, and, and there certainly are. I mean, you just all you have to do is cross the street and to um, Manhattan Criminal Court. And, you know, where his he, he's currently fighting with a legal team that includes uh, one of the same attorneys, Joe Takapina. And, uh, you know, and, and on and on from there in, in terms of the uh, other investigations that are going on uh, really to classify documents. 2020 election claims, Georgia, um, without getting into uh, details there. Um, but I think the other thing that is, uh, is, is important that this was an Adult Survivors Act lawsuit uh, that was uh, filed as soon as basically that went into law. And that gave her the opportunity, that gave her the window um, in order to bring these claims. And, you know, she mustered enough evidence to be able to convince a jury that, you know, th this event had in fact happened. So I, I her attorneys certainly said that, it, you know, this is, you know, a great moment because it, it shows that, you know, we're able to convince people that, you know, look, that this really happened and that hopefully that they're hoping that uh, other sexual assault survivors will feel willing to, you know, come forward and share their stories because Eugene Carroll was believed. And this is not 100 percent complete, right? Because Trump very famously fights in court. So I would imagine appeals are on the horizon. Absolutely. Um, as soon as um, Trump's attorney, Joe Takapina, left the courthouse, said that they were going to appeal. So you can bank on that. Um, if there's one thing that we know about Donald Trump is that he does not shy away from an appeal. He doesn't shy away from uh, filing his own litigation. So it's not the last chapter in this, even in this case. Well, it's a tremendously important case and a fascinating decision. Frank, thank you again. Uh, I know you're a busy guy these days, but we always Appreciate you stopping by Pro Se to uh, break down these very important stories for us. So thank you. Doing the best that I can. Thank you all. Take care. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Haley, I know you've got one for us. Amber, Alex, there are two things we can all agree on. We love a good Shaquille O'Neal anecdote. Agree. And we love the dramatic serving of court papers on an individual as long as that individual is not yourself. Oh, deeply agree with both of those takes, Haley. Yes. I am here today to heal this broken nation because <laughs> I have a story that involves both. Shaq is one of those athletes and celebs named as a defendant in an investor suit filed in the wake of the collapse of FTX. The investors, of course, say these public figures helped FTX defraud them by promoting the cryptocurrency exchange. But there has been a whole entertaining saga over serving Shaq. And attorneys for the investors say Shaq has been dodging their service attempts for months, but that they finally served him in April. However, this week, Shaq filed a motion um, in the case and said he actually had not been served. What had happened was a couple <laughs> of random dudes 
threw some legal papers at the front of his moving car. Oh, God. <laughs> I love this. Well, you know, my brain first goes to the idea that you would know for sure if you'd served Shaq. I mean, he's so <laughs> unmissable. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, yeah. he's you're not going to like accidentally serve someone else. Well, right. I mean, he's, he's just, well, he's giant, first of all, but also like he's just so memorable and he'd be easy to spot wherever he goes. So you would say, you would assume that like people trying to, to deliver service would have access because you can't miss him anytime he's in public. Consider this though. It might be hard to reach up there and give it to him. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I can I can Fair see where they, a step stool with you. Tried to get yeah, exactly. I could see where they maybe tried to get creative here, and clearly they did. If this allegation about throwing documents at a moving car has any weight to it, um, but this has been kind of a long running thing. I'm, I'm on the sports beat. I've been following it a little bit, and Haley, I know you've written about it more extensively than I have. Um, how has he? supposedly been dodging the service of these papers for months now. The investors' lawyers said they have tried to serve him at least eight or nine different times in eight or nine different locations. And according to them, he has been, quote, hiding and driving away from their process servers. Among some of those locations were just obvious ones, like his residences in Texas, Florida, and Nevada. Um, but these struggles led the investors to ask for permission to serve Shaq through his social media accounts. Uh, the court did not allow this. Such a shame. That's can't, really can't too bad. DM Shaq his his service you know, papers. We had to know that the universe was trending this direction. That like service would suddenly just be, yeah, I sent you a DM on someday you Twitter won't need permission or, or whatever. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's especially big in the case of Shaq. He was one of the, if, if the old Twitter heads know that that really put the site on the map for a while there, because Shaq was one of the first big celebrities. People would be like, oh, Shaq is over there talking about what he had for lunch. It's really crazy. <laughs> yes. You now, have to wonder, now though. Yeah, I know. And I now mean, we've, <laughs> we've come to this. Well, you have to wonder, too, though, if, if this did become a thing uh, that was widespread, you know, service via social media, so many celebrities have just a member of their team that yeah. handles the, it. So, like, is that true. effective service? I mean, there's no guarantee you're actually getting to the person. This is very true. Um, another funny thing in this case is, or with this situation, I would say, is, as you may or may not know, Shaq is a deputy sheriff in several South Florida law enforcement jurisdictions. And so a lawyer for the investors has thus remarked, as a sheriff in our community, we were just disappointed in his actions. He's a police officer, and he was running from us. <laughs> I, 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 I'm I sorry for my mind here. I, oh, yeah. I'm still just trying to take in. Now my brain is constructing this vision of Shaq in just like a deputy's uniform, which is very weird. <laughs> yeah, I remember he started doing this. I think he might have still been playing, and it's kind of like a volunteer firefighter type of situation. For the most part. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you want to take it at, at a very strict level, it is an interesting uh, argument by the lawyer there. It's like, I am, he is an officer of the law, uh, kind of, a, a little bit. But yes. Um, <laughs> but now, we, that, which brings us, they, the investors now say they did successfully serve him, yes? The investors say that he was successfully served outside his Atlanta home on April 16th. And they said that Shaq's home surveillance footage would have captured this. So they're like, there's proof. There's video proof. But here's what Shaq says went down. He's in his car. He's exiting his property. 
and a couple of dudes crowded the road, making it so he had to drive past them. Neither of the men, who he described as strangers lurking outside his home, identified themselves as there to serve process. And in fact, he says they are not registered to do so in Georgia. Instead, as he drove past them, one of the process servers tossed the legal documents at the front of his car. And here's a good quote from Shaq's filing. When the documents hit the car, which was moving at a high rate of speed, the documents fell onto the road and the process servers left the legal documents on the road where they landed. That is, on the public road. He says that throwing papers at a moving car and then leaving them unattended on a public (laughs) highway doesn't constitute being uh, personally served. And he said he has not been running or hiding or dodging these service attempts. It's not his fault. He just wasn't home the eight or nine times they stopped by. He's a busy guy. He's on TV still. It's the playoffs, as you know, Haley. uh, He's Shaq. I mean, he's busy being a deputy. Yeah, he's probably out there doing some citizen arrests or something. You know, (laughs) I will say, I am always tickled by any of these stories about, like, dodging service as if you can just ignore it long enough and if they can't get to you, that legal headache will go away. It's very... To me, it's very like the response of like a like a little kid. Like, yeah, oh, you well, can't give me those papers and then I won't know what's happening. Well, yep. that's an interesting parallel. The thing that leaps to my mind and, and any basketball fans, especially if you came up in the 90s like I did, will definitely know that what the investor lawyers are doing here sounds a lot like the way people used to have to defend Shaq in the low block. Because uh, nice. Yeah. Amber, I don't know if you're familiar with Hack-A-Shack. Do you know that uh, basketball term? Why, why do we embarrass me on this podcast? I have well, that no was, idea uh, what you're talking he was, about. He was so huge and he was so difficult to defend that basically defenders would have to follow him on purpose uh, so that he could go and shoot free throws, which he wasn't very good at. Oh, and it just, okay. it, it became this, and like the league has like changed rules because of like how that went because it made the game very unpleasant to watch. And this is honestly similar. Like the idea of like, oh, I can't do the normal thing where I just show up at somebody's house and say, here are your legal papers. I've got to do a kind of unnatural thing and literally throw them at you in hopes that it'll <laughs> work to my advantage, kind of gamifying the service of legal documents. So a lot of parallels, I think. That's, yeah, that's a great, great point. So the investor's lawyer, I did talk to him um, and he told me this week that the home surveillance video will show that Shaq was indeed served. And he noted that this happened as Shaq attempted to possibly injure the process server. I can only assume this means, you know, he was like speeding away or whatever as they were standing there. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, if he was in a moving car, I, I could see that. He wasn't it's suggesting... It's not like fisticuffs with the process Exactly. Server. Yeah, well, Shaq exactly. doesn't need a car to injure you, bro, just for the record. <laughs> no. But this, no. That, that's, that, that, that's not really material, but yes. <laughs> yeah. But he did say Shaq and his lawyers need to stop running and finally deal with these allegations. But we'll, we'll see if that happens. I mean, he's fighting them tooth and nail. I know we're never going to see this, but I would kind of like to see Shaq in a car weaving through these other cars and just like the papers being tossed and falling, fluttering I know. to the ground. Release, Cinematic, release the Shaq service tapes. <laughs> hey, if he's a government, if he wants to, if he wants to hold himself up as a government official, I think it's worth a FOIA shot, but I don't know. Probably wouldn't work. Ooh. The other Ooh. thing, the, the other thing, and I'm not, I, we don't really give out advice here, but if these guys are trying to find him, you know, he is on the, he is on the TNT set most nights. Like it's the playoffs. 
Just go there. Hand it to them on camera. <laughs> like the games yeah. are scheduled. You got good ideas. Do you want to I mean, sign I don't know. There, I, I'm, the guy is literally on TV like every other night. Uh, anyway. That's Fly <laughs> Alex out to the TNT studios. <laughs> that's right. He'll get it he done. will personally serve. Shit. That one's free. You got to pay for the rest. Uh, uh, anyway. Guys, so. what a great show. Thank you for bringing that one, Haley. It was my pleasure. What a good one. And Alex, as always, thanks for being with us. Thanks. See you again next week. We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Frank Runyon, and our contributing reporters, Brian Dowling and Rachel Scharf. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Mercano. If you like Pro Se, that's when you leave us a five-star and written review. Those really do help us out. And if you want to read more about anything we talked about today, and boy, we had a lot on the show, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.